Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you this week? I'm positively fantastic, Gary. Gary, you sound quite sick. Are you okay? Yeah, I've actually got some sniffles. Uh, so for listeners, I do apologize if uh, it affects your audio quality. I had proposed to Paddy that we might push it back to allow my sniffles <laughs> to recover but I don't think it should uh, affect you too much. So I apologize, but we should be okay. And the reason we didn't push it back, Gary, is because your sniffles always last for so long, so weak. Like imagine actually getting sick. It's generally like a, a, either either I get them for like 12 hours or it's like two days. Two They're like two, two timelines. Nah, man, you're always in there like... <laughs> anyway, look, that's beside the point because we're discussing something quite important today, um, which is... Basically, do certain macronutrients cause obesity, right? And I'm going to state it like that because when you state it like that, it does kind of sound a bit silly. However, there is some, we'll call it mechanistic stuff that you might argue and say that this macronutrient is more responsible for the obesity epidemic that we find ourselves in now. Um, And obviously this is, we're talking about obesity, but this is obviously relevant as well for just the general person trying to lose some fat gain some muscle that's just worried about you know body fat levels you know we're we're talking to like a health and fitness population here mainly so obviously this stuff is relevant to you guys as well that are listening for that reason um but it is actually it's almost worrying the way we'll call it like science gets distorted um with both of these arguments that we're going to discuss and well mainly just one of them because the other one there's not like most people wouldn't there's no mechanistic stuff that people would misrepresent and it's more so like there is actually reasons for the representation um but basically we're talking about two macronutrients and we're talking about carbohydrates and we're talking about fats those are the two that get aligned with this obesity epidemic right it's very rarely protein and there's a number of reasons for that and we'll, we'll touch on it in a, a second not a second later on in the podcast um, and it's definitely not fiber which you know you could argue is a different macronutrient to just carbohydrates and um, and it's definitely not water which is also something that you have to consume in like macronutrient quantities and um, so it's only these two that ever really get uh maligned as the the reason we have an obesity epidemic and the reasoning behind it, like it can actually be quite convincing, especially on the carbohydrate side of things, right? So, Gary, do carbs cause obesity? Like, is that is that all? Is is it as simple as that? Is it that's the root cause? It's just carbohydrates in the diet. That's obesity. We'll touch on sugar in a second as a subset of that. But is it just carbs? If we cut out all carbs in the diet, we stop selling carbs, any carbs. would that solve the obesity epidemic yeah so i think like the first thing to address here is the the use of the word cause because this is something that came up in the last episode and the previous episode before that and the important thing to understand is that uh, it's not a mystery what causes weight gain uh, or fat gain like it's it's by no means a mystery and while we have addressed in the last couple of episodes the fact that there are many contributing causes like the fundamental mechanism or proximal cause you could say we know is an excess of energy in the diet. So it's an imbalance of energy, a calorie surplus, an energy surplus, 
whatever you wish to call it. Like, there's no doubt about that. Like, that's that's not something that's that's up for debate because, like, it, it's it's physics. As in, we would have to modify our understanding of very basic physics and the laws that underpin chemistry and biochemistry and all these fields for someone to be able to challenge that. Really, okay. So that's the first thing. That's the proximal cause is an excess of energy in the diet. But with that said, you could still make a causal argument for a macronutrient while still accepting that proximal cause. So it's not necessarily the case that you have to reject thermodynamics or the role of of energy contributions in the diet to be able to accept other causes. So that's the first thing, because I do think that's something that a lot of people in the fitness industry do create a straw man out of. Like they'll just kind of repeat over and over again that it's just calories, it's just calories, it's just calories. And as a result, they'll reject any other arguments. But as we've discussed in the past, causality can have multiple layers. So in this case, we would be suggesting that are asking the question, is there a role of specific macronutrients in driving that energy excess, for example? Um, so there's two questions there. One is, do carbohydrates um, increase uh, body fat independent of changes in energy in the diet. And the second one is if you eat, you know, carbohydrates, are you more likely to consume more energy in the diet? Okay. And overall, I think that the answer is like probably no. Uh, firstly, if you, if we're talking about the, whether or not carbohydrates increase body fat independent of changes of energy in the diet. So for example, you're consuming the same amount of calories, but you're consuming more carbs. That's not going to have an impact um, on your on your body composition or or on your weight, okay, it might have an impact in your on your body composition if, for example, um, it was to displace protein in the diet. For example, you could see how that might might modify body composition, but you wouldn't expect there to be a change in uh, body weight as a result of just eating more carbohydrates um, as long as you've kept calories the same. People will propose mechanisms as to why that would be the case. For example, some people will say that uh, de novo lipogenesis, which is the process of creating fat within the body uh, from carbohydrates, that they'll suggest that that is the process uh, by which this might take place. But the reality is that that doesn't tend to happen unless there's a significant need for that to happen. So in cases where we see de novo lipogenesis, again, the conversion of carbohydrate to fat in the body, in cases where we see that happen, it tends to be in overfeeding. So again, it's just a case of, you know, massively overfeeding people and the body's basically saying, how can we now store this excess energy? And because that excess energy is primarily in the form of carbohydrate, other um, molecular transformations have to take place. If that excess in, if that excess energy was simply fat, then those changes wouldn't necessarily need to take place because it's readily available for storage. Okay. And then the second- Basically, just, just to- Yeah, go ahead. Put that a little bit simpler. Like, carbohydrates you have a defined limit for the amount of carbohydrates you can store within the body like you basically have your muscles and your liver like that's not entirely true but they're the main stores right so once they're fully topped up uh, if you're still overfeeding on carbohydrates there's more glucose in the blood basically if there's more carbohydrates in the blood they have to go somewhere right but again just to reiterate that that only happens when glycogen stores are completely full right which generally tends to mean you're overfeeding or you're overeating, which then comes back to this calories thing where you're like, you're eating more calories than you're burning through. Right. But anyway, just, just to kind of simplify that. 
Yeah, and 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 that's a good clarification. Um, because yeah, as you say, like there are there are stores of carbohydrates in the body, but they're so limited compared to the potential for storing fat. You know, obviously we all see where fat can be stored. It can be stored basically anywhere beyond the basic subcutaneous areas that we think of, um, into the organs, around the the vascular system, so around all your blood vessels, around your heart, everywhere, okay? Even in the muscles themselves. Yeah, even in your muscles. Literally anywhere it it will find its way in. Um, Whereas carbohydrates, it's really just a case of, yeah, as you say, the the liver, the muscle, a little bit in the kidneys, you know, and obviously you have carbohydrates in your blood, but a very, very small amount compared to... um, compared to other areas. But with that said, um, the second layer of that question then would be, okay, well, we get it. It's, it's all energy. It's, it's calories. Um, but what about, you know, when you eat uh, carbohydrates or a diet that is um, composed of more carbohydrates than fats, let's say, is that going to lead to massive increases in energy intake, for example? And that really depends on, on, on how you're, you're looking at the question, because obviously we could just say that, well, it doesn't matter because once you control for calories, like it's as simple as that, just do that. Um, but that's not the way people behave in free living conditions. The way people behave in free living conditions is that they choose foods that they enjoy, that are accessible to them, that they might perceive as healthful, depending on their intentions, etc. And when you look at like the, the way that the, um, the Western diet, which is now basically a global diet in developed countries and developing countries increasingly. If you look at the pattern of the, the kind of typical Western diet, what you typically see is that there's somewhere around like over the last 20 years, at least you see carbohydrates coming in and around like 50%, maybe 45, maybe 55, sometimes depending on where you're looking, fat will be about 35% or so. And protein will be around 15%. Okay. And that's actually a kind of a high fat diet um, and kind of a low carb diet. And I know that doesn't sound um, like that is the case, but if you could, if you actually look at at common dietary patterns and past dietary patterns, and for example, if you were to compare it to the typical uh, Chinese diet prior to um, moving towards more of a Western diet, what you would see is that the carbohydrate intake was actually much higher previously. Um, fat intake was much much lower, and as China, for example, have moved towards a more obesogenic diet and higher rates of obesity, their carbohydrate intake has actually dropped and their fat intake has increased. Um, but looking at the macronutrients, them, looking at the macronutrients themselves doesn't actually tell you the whole story. Because if we were to ask the question, you know, does eating more carbohydrates lead to um, more body fat gain or more, more calorie, uh, more of an, an increase in calories? Like it's not really a good question because if someone was increasing their carbohydrate intake and they were to do that via increasing more beans and legumes and whole grains and, you know, sweet potatoes and these types of foods, like that would be, a di- that would have a different effect on satiety, which is something we'll touch on in more detail later, um, a different effect on satiety. And as a result, your kind of tendency to consume more calories than consuming like lots of refined grain products. So things like 
breads, croissants, you know, those types of like really tasty carbohydrate dense foods. And the other thing that kind of goes along with eating more of those foods. um, And the reason I mentioned this is because if you look at kind of the dietary trend from 1970 onwards, you do see a big increase in consumption of like uh, snack foods and breads and cereals that are just basically refined flour based um, made of refined grains. Like they're also vehicles for other macronutrients, particularly fat. And that's what you see is that when you look, when you ask the question, what are the big contributors to the increases in calorie intake over the last five decades or so in developed countries? It tends to be from uh, grain products and added fats and oils, okay? And they're basically just like caloric vehicles that travel together. You can see how it's very, very easy to sit down with something like a croissant, which already has butter in it, and then you add more butter to it. And now it's just like, that's so easy to eat. You know, it's the same. On that as well, it's also basically the perfect dichotomy because you've got these like almost pure uh, carbohydrate foods in terms of like these grains. And then you've got pure like fat foods in terms of these oils and butters and stuff. So it's like both of these are going up, right? So it's like, what? Like how it's very hard to dissociate the two of them. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's, that's kind of the key thing with this whole discussion is that like, there, there is no like uh, villain macronutrient that we can identify as a cause um, of increasing rates of obesity over time. Rather, it does again, come back to the food environment. And as a result, the types of foods that are available to people, because one of the interesting things that I think you, you see, if you look in, if you look at the kind of um, epidemiological research and kind of surveys on food intake over time, what you kind of see is this like weird effect where or it's almost a paradox. If you look at it in isolation, if you look at the, the household or the, the estimated calorie consumption based on household purchases uh, over time. And in the, this is in both the UK and the US. I didn't read anything on it in Ireland, um, but we have a smaller population, not as useful. Um, but basically, if you look at the, the calorie intake from, from those estimates of what has been um, purchased in, in different households, calorie intake seems to have decreased. And then you're like, whoa, whoa, bro, like calorie intake decreased and everyone got fatter. Like, is that really what happened? But no, the reality is that, you know, in that time, obviously it's become easier um, to eat out. So more people eat out, more people eat in the work canteen, more people buy convenience foods on the go, whether it be, you know, going to, I don't know, Starbucks in the morning, getting your coffee and getting some sort of croissant or cookie with it or something like that. So people eat out a lot more. And if you think about the types of convenience foods you might buy on the go, or even what you order when you go to a restaurant, very often they're not high fat, low carb or high carb, low fat type foods. They're basically a mixture of something that basically replicates the kind of emergent macronutrient uh, composition of the Western diet, which is around that, like, you know, 50% carbs, 35% fat, 15% protein. They're the types of things that you see, you know, even if you basically, basically you're just describing pizza. Yeah, that's exactly the perfect example is pizza. You know, it's not, it's not a, like when you look at pizza, like a lot of people will say, oh, you know, so many carbs in pizza, but like, it's also a really, really high fat food. You know, it's a really high calorie food as a result. And it's the same if you, I don't know, you have a grilled cheese sandwich or something like that, you know, or you go to McDonald's, like it's not the carbs, it's not the fat, it's the overall composition of the foods that are really easy to consume in large quantities that 
lead you to increase your calorie consumption because they're really, really tasty and often not that satiating. Okay. So even if you were to take the exact same macronutrient composition and you were to adjust that to a meal that was had lots of fruit and lots of fiber, lots of uh, food volume uh, per calorie. So it's made of, it's got vegetables, it's got beans, it's like got legumes, like all the, it's got lean protein sources. The, it's not just the macronutrient composition. So I think that's kind of the key point here that we'll probably reiterate a few times is that focusing too much on the macronutrient composition of your own diet or of the kind of diet of the population over time mightn't always give you the best answers as to, to what a, a healthy diet or a diet that contributes to um, a healthy uh, weight uh, actually looks like. Yeah. And I, I want to bring this back to the discussion of carbs and then I want to bring it into yeah. a discussion of fats as well. But then also I want to really dig into, we'll call it the satiety stuff and then the, the food environment, just touch on it a bit more because we do have further episodes planned to discuss that stuff, especially around like the kind of neuroregulation of appetite, which all this stuff changes. But I also want to just touch on something that you said, because it can often be almost misconstrued, I'd say. Um, and that is this, this idea that uh, the previous diet of a population was actually healthier, right? And the Chinese are a good example in terms of, like you're saying, that their previous diet was much higher in carbohydrates and now that they've shifted to more towards a more Western diet, we'll, we'll call it whatever you want to call it, the Anglo diet, Anglo-American diet. <laughs> but either way, they, they've shifted more towards that Western diet. Like you're seeing increases in obesity. And a lot of people would use that information and say, oh, we should actually be eating more carbohydrates and less fat. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the issue. But it's also very hard to disentangle all of the stuff that's going on because while fats have increased in, in their diet as a proportion and as a total, like the total calories in the diet have increased. Yeah. So like you could make a very strong argument that it's again, just calories because that's, that's the, the, the actual cause of obesity. It is simply calories. However, as we've been discussing in these episodes and in this whole discussion, and as we'll touch on today and Gary's just touched on there a second ago, there's far more to, peeling back that onion um, in terms of what's actually going on. Like you might be like, oh yes, this onion, that's the cause, that's it's calories. But when you actually start peeling it back, there's many, many layers to it in terms of how that actually changes the food environment, how it actually changes your response to the diet, all that kind of stuff, right? And again, you could also very strongly, as I was just saying, make a, a, an argument that it's now fat. Fat is the issue in the diet, that's the cause of obesity. And we'll touch on that in a second. And um, especially with this Chinese population, like if you start seeing that, oh, fat has increased in the diet and obesity increased, it has to be fat. And again, there's very simple logic in that thought process, but it's not necessarily correct. And that's something that we wanna touch on. But anyway, let's, let's just bring it back to carbohydrates, right? So from anything you've seen, we'll not, we'll exclude um, sugar for a second, but in terms of carbohydrates, right? And um, we'll actually exclude fiber as well. Is there something in your mind that you've ever read, you've ever seen, you've had a compelling argument made to you in terms of carbohydrates themselves from any source, right? Except for, well, I suppose any source, just full stop. It could be sugar, but we'll touch on sugar and we'll touch on fiber later on. Um, but is there any way in your mind that you would see carbohydrates themselves being obesogenic like inherently causing you to 
get more body fat just deposited on your body versus if you had eaten the same amount of calories from protein or from fat. Now, protein has like thermic effect of eating and there's other stuff that goes on, but you know what I'm saying? Like we, if we calorie matched everything, um, any mechanistic thing that you'd see just from a carbohydrate perspective, because in my mind, I'm seeing very little. Now we could touch on insulin in a second because I, w- I want to discuss that and we'll touch on sugar as well. But just from the baseline, is there anything more obesogenic just from baseline carbohydrates? Personally, no, but I, I have, I have unfortunately seen people try to adopt this very, very reductionistic perspective of, of nutrition and specifically carbohydrates where they'll do the teaspoons of sugar comparison of like how many teaspoons of sugar are in potatoes and stuff because they basically say like this is in particular this one gp from the uk dr david on one and he makes these graphics um and basically his whole thing is that all starch and all complex carbohydrates they all break down to glucose in the end so they're basically just sugar um and he is a proponent of you know discussing potatoes and i don't know sweet potatoes or rice or whatever just in terms of teaspoons of sugar which is absolutely moronic in my eyes but there you go (laughs) there's a lot of morons out there but anyway right so we're in agreement there's and again like you listening to this the the avid listener you don't have to agree with us you can look at the science yourself you can read whatever listen to whoever you want but i have seen nothing convincing from my perspective that would inherently make carbohydrates obesogenic right so the other thing that might be now this this is might be where he's coming from right Sugar. Sugar is the cause of obesity, Gary. Did you not get the memo? It's all sugar, right? Uh, and they'll, the people who propose this will have, we'll say mechanistic stuff in terms of why that is the case. Um, and there's two reasons. And we touched on one of them. Well, you touched on one of them earlier on in terms of this like lipogenesis, which as we discussed already, it's, uh, or de novo lipogenesis, I should say. Um, it's not something that's going to occur in the absence of excess calories, which is what we're proposing is the actual cause of obesity. <laughs> um, but, uh, but they'll also propose this kind of insulin model of fat gain. And as we all know, sugar is the most insulinogenic compound you can eat, except when you actually read the science, then it's not the most insulinogenic compound you can eat. Um, oh, that actually protein, is, protein is also insulinogenic. So do we now say we have to eat a very low, carbohydrate diet and a very low protein diet and all fat because i know people do actually make that claim as well once they get exposed to the idea that protein does also cause an insulin spike and and also well i should say fat also causes an insulin spike it's just way way less um, or way lowered and so basically anytime you eat you get an insulin spike and gary discuss some things there about insulin before i go off on a little bit of a tangent here yes so, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the the kind of general like carbohydrate insulin model of obesity has been in the classic scientific sense falsified, okay, in terms of its predictions did not um, produce the outcomes that, you know, you would have expected had the model been true. So just to, just to lay out the model, basically, yes. it's like, again, as we said earlier on, calorie matched, one guy has higher fat, one guy has a more insulinogenic diet calories are the same and one of them the one that eats this more insulinogenic diet i don't care if you made it through protein 
like obviously certain insulinogenic amino acids or carbohydrates, especially sugar. Like maybe you gave them 60% sugar in the diet. Like the calories were just made up from sugar and whey protein, the most fucking insulinogenic diet you could possibly have, right? <laughs> um, no fiber, no fats, nothing, right? Um, versus someone who's eating a whole foods diet, higher fat, right? The, the This model would propose that the person eating the sugar and whey basically would gain more fat, even though calories were matched, right? And obviously we have to match protein as well because otherwise it's a bit of a false argument. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think any research, I don't think there's any research that would support that in terms of calories being matched. But as we'll touch on later on, there are differences in terms of like satiety, neuroregulation of appetite, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, as far as I'm aware, there's there's no research to support that. In fact, there's research to support the exact opposite. Yep, that's it's unfortunate, you know. But uh, there we are. But but yes, to 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 the question, um, is is it is it just is it just insulin that insulin spikes and as a result you get you know an increase in body fat and it's as simple as that, and and the answer um, again is no because fundamentally like you can like when you're thinking see like both you and I like love the mechanistic arguments. I think it's really interesting. Like you studied biochemistry, like I'm studying medicine. I love physiology and, and all the biochemistry. It's all super interesting. Okay. It's really interesting to ponder the mechanisms by which different things work. But fundamentally you have to actually zoom out and say, okay, what actually happens as an outcome in the real world? And that's the actual question of interest. Okay. And when people kind of think about insulin, what they'll look at are the, are the basic kind of roles of insulin in, in biochemistry. And they'll see kind of a soundbite, something like, or oh, insulin um, inhibits, um, you know, fat oxidation or lipolysis or these different factors that as we discussed in the podcast on fat oxidation, which you should listen to, um, you, you, have to you have to consider them in the overall context of the diet and lifestyle, and in particular, the overall ener energy balance, because insulin is fundamentally just playing a signaling role um, in the process of energy distribution and energy storage. It's playing a signaling role. And while that role is in favor of nutrient storage, trying to put things where they need to be, it, that doesn't necessarily take place in the absence of the excess energy. So you first need the excess energy for that storage to be manifest. Because if you do not have that excess energy through excess calories in the diet, then there's nothing to be stored because you can't just create that energy out of nothing, which again, comes back again to the fundamental laws of physics. And it's why we can't escape the fact that calories are the most important contributor. Of course, there are um, factors that modify um, how many calories are involved in certain processes um, in the body, such as digestion and the processing of different nutrients, the thermic effect of feeding, etc. But overall, it comes back to the to the energy contribution. Um, and like the only real way that we could say that you know insulin would. Um, drive a massive, a significant increase in body weight would be that you know if you're on a a, a diet that is isoenergetic, so same calories, and it has only a different composition of carbohydrates and fats, so one high carb, one high fat, and thus low in the opposite way around. Um, that the more insulinogenic um, diet, the higher carbohydrate diet, we would expect. If, the, if that produced an increase in weight gain, then that would be like, okay, yeah, it's, it's, it's insulin. There we go. But that 
just doesn't happen, you know? Yeah, like the way I think of it, like, first of all, I actually think it's, we're going to call them biochemists. They're, they're the reason that, and I'm, that's my own field, so taking the hit. I'm going to say that they're the reason that this whole hypothesis comes about because they describe, and I'm going to, you know, throw dietetics under the bus as well because they run with it. Um, but basically they describe insulin as a storage hormone when that's one of its functions. Well, it's not even one of its functions, right? And I'll give, I'll give two analogies in a second. Um, they describe insulin as a storage hormone when it's not actually a storage hormone. It's a nutrient sensing hormone, right? That's what it is, right? It's basically saying, oh, I have energy in. Insulin now has to go up to tell the body what to do with that energy. But it's the energy in that's causing the insulin to go up. It's basically saying, again, there's, there's, it's sensing nutrients in, in the body. And then it's also signaling to say, let's do something with these nutrients. And there's two ways. I'm going to get two analogies in terms of how to think of this. And um, one of them just in terms of new, uh, insulin's role in the cell. And that is insulin is basically just someone knocking on the door, right? That's all it is. And this can help you understand insulin sensitivity and insulin resistant, right? Um, insulin is just, there's calories in the diet, right? There's whatever, there's nutrients floating around. And insulin's role is to knock on the door, in this example, the door to the cell and go knock, knock can I put this stuff in here? That's all insulin is doing, right? Now, obviously that's incredibly simplified, but it's basically just a knock on the door, right? And if the cell is very sensitive to insulin, it's basically just a little knock, a little tiny, small one, right? Whereas if the cell is insulin resistant, it's resistant to that knock, it basically has to bang on that door before someone opens the door, right? So that's very simplistically how I think of insulin, right? In terms of its role in this kind of storage stuff, right? Now, to give a little bit more of a, an analogy to actually talk about insulin's role in this fat gain or obesity um, pathogenesis or whatever you want to call it. Um, it, it. It's almost the same as thinking of it like a factory, right? So insulin is the foreman, right? Insulin is the one that's directing things. And we're say we're just storing boxes. The, the, the job is you get boxes of stuff in, whatever it is, think of whatever company, has stuff, has orders, you know, whatever. Basically, they're all in boxes, right? They're in these square boxes. And you have a lot of workers. You know, these are the ones that are carrying stuff around, putting them where they need to go, organizing them, whatever. But insulin is the foreman. Insulin is the one that's telling them where to go. And there are other signals, but we'll forget about them for this discussion. Like there is in the, the actual body, like you've got like a non-insulin mediated contraction, like the, it gets uh, nutrients into the cell. And um, but anyway, that's beside the point. So with insulin, it's the foreman. So you get a, a, a delivery, right? This is nutrients that you eat, right? You get a delivery of all these boxes, right? The foreman goes, right, we've got nutrients, i.e. boxes. Let's, let's put them where they need to go, right? Now, if you had uh, an isocaloric situation where the calories you get in, these nutrients that you get in are the same as the nutrients that you get out, the foreman would literally be saying, right, we got this order in, it's going straight out. Or sorry, we got this delivery in, it's going straight out as an order, right? It might be temporarily stored somewhere else on a pallet, whatever, but it's almost straight away used again, right? If you're in a case where, you know, you've got more, or you've, you've got more boxes coming in and they need to be stored for a period of time before you can actually put them out into the next order, whatever, the foreman's role, again, insulin in this case, is to direct all of these people moving the boxes where to go. And the same thing, you can imagine that it's a warehouse with 
different stores on either side of it. Like we'll just say there's a, a conveyor belt in the center and then either side of the warehouse, there is like these storage units. They all have like doors on them, we'll say, right? So the foreman says, right, everybody pick up your box. This is the nutrients that you've just got in. And insulin then is going to go around and knock on all those doors and let you in to store that box, right? Again, it's going to do that for all of these, these people that are carrying these boxes. So they're carrying the boxes, they can't open the door themselves, right? Some of them can be through other mechanisms, you know. Again, as I said, like some there's contraction and whatever else, and they use their elbow, they open the door. Great, they get into the cells, right? And again, as I said, you could be more insulin resistant and he has to knock louder or he has to, the door is jammed, you can't really open it up, right? But just because the foreman is telling these people to put the boxes into different places, right? That's, that's not the cause of the boxes needing to be stored, right? The boxes needing to be stored is because we have more boxes coming in than we have going out in, in orders, right? Like that's fundamentally what's going on, right? Like there's, there's more stuff coming in than there is going out. And in this case, there's more calories coming in than there is going out, right? And that's, I've just solved obesity, right? <laughs> in terms of that's the, the cause. It's just calories in, calories out. But insulin is unjustly vilified in, in this argument in, in my mind because it also does have some very favorable uh, effects on other, you know, stuff in the body like you, like it has effects on other hormones in terms of um, testosterone um, has effects on you know other endocrine hormones, other sex hormones um, that are favorable that we do want, right? So, in my mind, I'm just I'm actually so beyond thinking of insulin as even being a bad guy, as you know people put out that I can't even see it, right? And like someone listening to this that might have this insulin is the devil mindset might be listening to that and going oh look see you can't even fucking see it you know he's beyond help but i'm coming to that from perspective of having read a lot of science on insulin having read a lot of information liking biochemistry having a degree in biochemistry not that that's an appeal to authority or anything i'm just saying that like i've looked into this if there was something like as easy as that to be the the reason then i would be all over that i'd be like look we solved it. It's all just fucking easy biochemistry to understand. You fucking nerds don't even fucking understand this shit. We've, we've solved it, you know? So I'm coming in from, from that bias and I don't think there is a, 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 an even weak argument to make about the uh, insulin hypothesis of obesity. Yeah, and, and for the record, like this shouldn't be confused because I think it often is and it's, it's, a, it's a cause of confusion with insulin resistance because like this is where people get confused. Like they, they, they might see something bad about insulin resistance, which do not get me wrong. Insulin resistance is, is a big part of a lot of um, cardiometabolic disease risk. You know, it plays a very significant role, but you know, what what causes um, insulin resistance is again an, an excess of, of energy and body fat. Like they they both contribute. Um, whether or not one contributes more is kind of irrelevant because they co-occur. Um, they they basically drive insulin resistance. So fundamentally, like I can I can see how people might get confused because you know they say they might say that hey look, ob- uh, people with obesity are insulin resistant, carbohydrates increase insulin and 
that causes insulin resistance and that causes obesity. But that's just a very kind of simplistic and false interpretation. Um, also, it's, it's, it's actually thinking of things from the wrong way around. Yeah. Like we're talking about what's causing it. They're talking about potentially how you solve the issue. Like someone is already insulin resistant. Now, how do we deal with that? Versus that, like just because something is used to, we'll call it treat something, that doesn't mean that that's the same way that you would go about preventing something. Yeah, a hundred percent. So yeah, just, just recognize that, that we're not saying that um, oh, in, anything that people say about insulin resistance is a myth like that. That's not true. Insulin resistance is definitely um, a pathological uh, state um, and is a big part of uh, type two diabetes. It's not the only part, but it's a big part of it. Um, so yeah, just, just recognize that park that for this discussion because that's something to, to be discussed in future. But yeah, I, I, I think that kind of, puts us where we need to be with carbohydrates really like I, I can't make a strong case that they're inherently obesogenic anyway don't know about yeah, you there's, there's nothing else that i can say on that that basically can't like if you just disprove whatever we just took down with facts and logic and the <laughs> insulin, insulin obesity hypothesis um but if you just disprove that and then you discuss just normal carbohydrates like i just, I just don't see any way I, there's no there's nothing in my mind no argument that has been strong enough to sway me nothing that like i have literally biochemistry books here to my side there's nothing in there that would be like yeah that's it's insulin right or it's carbohydrates okay so we're not of the opinion that it's carbohydrates fault however is it fats fault gary Gary, it has to be fats if it's not carbohydrates it's fats that's the that's the cause and again this is a this is very this is just science 101 gary this is this is basic are you eat fats they get stored as fat. And therefore, if you are carrying excess body fat, it simply means that you have eaten too many fats. Therefore, obesity is simply, and Gary, stay with me now, it is simply too much fats in the diet. That's, that's the cause. And we use that Chinese example. Look, you can already see the Chinese. They're eating more fats in the diet and they're seeing more obesity. Gary, this is irrefutable proof. That's it. You've done it, man. That's it's done. <laughs> but yeah. Um, okay. So when we look to fats, right? Like firstly, reflect on our kind of conclusion about carbohydrates for a moment. Okay. So what we are not suggesting is that there's no role for carbohydrate-based foods in increasing one's risk of obesity. Okay. If you're eating a lot of refined flours, a lot of sugar, a lot of really tasty carbohydrate-dense foods, of course, it's very easy to overeat um, your calories. But what we tend to see is that very often these uh, carbohydrates tend to coexist with added fats. If you think of something like chocolate, like chocolate is not necessarily a, it's not just sugar. It's not just fat. It's, it's a bit of both. You know, if you're looking, having a chocolate croissant, again, it's kind of a similar thing. If you're having a Big Mac, it's a similar thing. There's carbohydrates, there's fats. So a lot of the time, these vehicles for lots and lots of calories tend to carry both refined carbohydrates and or sugar, depending on the food product, um, with additional added fats, okay? Sometimes those fats will be saturated, sometimes they'll be unsaturated, um, might be relevant in some cases, but I, I, from, from an obesity perspective, added fats are generally very tasty in foods, regardless of whether they're saturated or unsaturated. You know, the palatability um, is delicious, you know, when combined in particular with carbohydrate-based foods. But what about fats themselves? Like, is, is there something inherently obesogenic about fats? And I remember that when I first got into the gym, 
this is more or less, I think, where most people were at and where a lot of the information was at in terms of bodybuilding diets. They were very much um, low fat, high carbohydrate based because, you know, once you keep your fat low, it's, it's very simple. You're not, re- not going to gain body fat. You're just going to gain lean mass because you don't have any fat to be stored as body fat. And I remember that being one of my first kind of nutrition beliefs because i remember sitting down one time i used to absolutely love wine gums as a teenager still do like i'm a big like jellies fan when i was when i was i don't know was i 16 or something 15 maybe at the time i don't even think i was in the gym but i was just eating them and i think it was early in the day and i just remember thinking oh these are great because they're really low on fat you know i'm never going to get fat from eating these that was my absolutely just catastrophic nutrition knowledge at the time um so I can see how that kind of thought process is is very simple and and lucrative. It's even it's even simpler than the carbohydrate example, which which kind of surprises me because you know the carbohydrate uh, cause of obesity and cause of excess weight. I think that that's probably more lucrative these days for most people. But again, I don't know about that. I think I just tend to see it more often. But maybe that's also because because it has a higher level of complexity and because it goes against what people feel they've been told to eat, that people are kind of, you know, attracted to that a bit more. But for fats, right, obviously there's a very simple pathway to the storage of fat because if you eat fat, it can be pretty much stored, you know, as it is consumed more or less. Like, yeah, there are some processes, you know, chylomicrons into the blood, blah, you know, it's, 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 there's, there's steps between there. They don't just go into your gut and immediately shuttle to your adipose tissue, but there's no need for them to be converted into um, another molecule as such. You know, we, when we talk about carbohydrates, they obviously have to be converted into fat, but when it comes to dietary fat, they can effectively just be stored, you know? Um, but again, it comes back to that case that we've brought up so many times in this conversation that if there's not a need for, or if there is a need for that energy. So for example, if you're consuming fat in the diet, you're consuming a higher fat diet um, and you're in um, an isoenergetic state. So you're at maintenance calories to put it simpler, then there's no need or there is a need rather for that fat. And as a result, it will be used for fuel. Whereas if you were had an excess of energy in the diet, you're consuming a calorie surplus then that fat is then going to be stored. Okay. So again, it's very simple. It's very simple to understand, but there's, there's no real way that we could justify eating fat, increasing body fat, independent of excess energy in the diet. With that said, when you do look at acute overfeeding studies, um, because there have been some of these, you do see like a trend uh, towards people increasing their body fat more when they overfeed with like a thousand calories of fat, for example. But I mean, you know, how transferable that is to the real world is is questionable because if you think about short-term overfeeding studies, one of the things that will happen with carbohydrates, at least, is that you'll first fill up all your glycogen stores, whereas with fat, there's no filling up of, of fat stores other than it being actual adipose tissue somewhere in the body. Um, so I, I don't, I don't like, I'm not going to make the opposite case that, you know, in, eating more fat is inherently going to lead to way more body fat gain. Um, but yeah, overall, look, it's, it's kind of the same conclusion. It's, it's energy in the diet. I'm, I'm not convinced that, you know, a higher fat diet is inherently bad either. 
I literally have nothing else to add to that. Like it basically just comes down to calories. And the reason people think fats are so bad is because they have more calories. It's like, that's it's as simple as that. But, um, but can I just add one more thing? Actually, one thing I will say is that like having a diet that is um, not restricted in either carbohydrates or fats. Like if you're thinking about your, your management of your own diet, like it does open up way more foods to you. And that can be obesogenic, okay? And I think that's something that is worth considering, because you know it's it's not always it's not it's not about just discussing the mechanisms. It's about discussing how your interaction with food and the environment affects your energy intake. And what tends to happen is that if someone has a very low fat intake, let's say they're like I'm aiming for less than fifteen percent of total caloric intake, what what you then do is you end up biasing your carbohydrate sources towards those that tend to be less calorie dense because you've got lower fat versions of things. Um, you're generally going to be choosing more whole carbohydrate sources. So for example, you can't have like potato gratin. You have to have just potatoes. You know, you can't have French fries. You have to have just, I don't know, homemade wedges or something. So you end up making your foods less calorie dense um, and you have less foods available to you. Like you can't be having chocolate. You can't really be having sandwiches with lots of mayonnaise or cheese. So as a result, you end up with lower calorie uh, dense foods because of the restriction in fat. It's not a mechanistic reason why lower fat diets are superior for weight loss or for weight management. It's simply the case that you have less foods available to you. And it's the exact same for people who restrict carbohydrates. People will go on low carbohydrate, high fat diets. And what are they left with? They're left with meat, eggs, fish, you know, dairy, uh, fruits, vegetables even the fruits like you're going to be edgy that's a bit that's a bit much you know and yeah there'll be there'll be nuts and seeds and dark chocolate and you know in some cases people do just do silly things like you know have ridiculous amounts of butter or eat loads of really really fatty meats which obviously makes it easier to bump your calories up but when you look at like a well-structured low-carbohydrate diet what tends to happen is you're self-selecting for pretty healthy foods, higher protein intake, higher fiber intake. Um, and as a result, uh, less likelihood that you're going to be overfeeding. So don't just get caught up in the mechanistic questions, because I think that is what happens sometimes. And people will say to themselves, oh, it's fine. Once I track my calories, I can eat whatever I want. But if you leave your dietary choices too open-ended, the result kind of ends up start back where you started, where you know your only barrier to you gaining weight now is your uh, calorie tracking app rather than actually modifying to healthier food choices and modifying your own personal food environment in terms of the foods you buy, where you shop, etc. Yeah. And some of these arguments that you see, again, we're going to touch on it in a second um, around what we'll call like spontaneous uh, food intake, right? People are like, Oh, well, you know, you have this diet that prevents you from spontaneously eating more food and again this is a very valid thing it's something we'll touch on in a second and it's actually really important for other discussion but it fundamentally doesn't need to be about macronutrients to discuss that phenomena right if i said to you you can only eat food that was grown within 50 miles we'll say of your house you know that's going to do the same thing you know like that's that's fundamentally going to cause you to not be able to overeat or spontaneously snack on any of these variety of different foods. Like people are like, Oh, well, I'm on a, uh, I like av avocados. I like avocados. I'm like, okay, they can't be grown in Ireland. So well, like they can, but it's just uneconomically, or it's economically unfeasible. Um, 
But uh, you know what I mean? Like it's, you're not going to spontaneously overeat as a result because, oh, you're going to buy this packet of crisps. No, sorry, they did. They weren't, you couldn't grow them. You couldn't cook them. You couldn't do whatever with them in a 50 mile radius, you know? So I don't, that's obviously me being uh, hyperbolic in terms of just the, 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 the way I'm describing a diet, but it doesn't fundamentally have to be about macronutrients to cause that effect. That's what I just want to put out there. Like you could do it through anything, you know, this is also how like we'll call it intermittent fasting works. People are like, Oh yeah, I'm not allowed to eat between these hours. And all of a sudden like spontaneous snacking goes down because that's just outside their food window, you know, same with other, like we'll call them fad diets. Like we'll be like, Oh, paleo diet, irregardless of, uh, or sorry, irregardless of uh, macronutrients, like whatever percentages or whatever, if you're just saying, I can only eat foods my ancestors eat or whatever way you want to define a paleo diet, all of a sudden it stops you spontaneously eating these foods, you know? Um, so there, there is more to this. But just to finish out the, the discussion on macronutrients before we just touch on a few more things, um, I just want to touch on satiety uh, and especially in relation to protein intake and fiber intake right? Because this is something, and again, it comes back to that, arg- that discussion we're going to have in terms of like uh, the spontaneous food consumption. Like if you eat a higher satiety diet, like a diet that makes you feel fuller for longer, like you will spontaneously eat less calories, right? And I don't care if that is a higher fat diet or a higher carb diet, right? Like it's, it's irrelevant once it causes you to eat less calories. And probably the two big players in this are protein intake and fiber intake. Like if you have a, you know, we'll say moderate to high protein intake, you're going to spontaneously eat less full stop, right? Because it's very hard, first of all, to feel hungry enough to eat more, you know, like uh, you do also start expending more energy. Like you get less energy in return for the amount of energy you're eating in terms of like, it has this thermic effect of protein has this thermic effect of feeding where you burn off some energy in the actual digestion and assimilation of that protein. So it's not a fair comparison. And this is why protein is so effective. If you are trying to diet, obviously, regardless of the, the, the muscle mass preservation side of things, and it's just a really satiating macronutrient. And also you're actually getting less calories for every calorie you consume right? So that's obviously beneficial if you're trying to lose weight, but also obviously it's also beneficial if you're trying not to gain weight or you're trying not to be obese, right? So protein is obviously very beneficial. Same with uh, fiber. And again, it keeps you fuller for longer um, and, you know, has benefits in terms of your, your blood glucose control and all that kind of stuff, your insulin response. So again, even if you're using an insulin model of obesity, fiber still of benefit and it's almost like it's forgotten because people will do that thing where they go oh uh, yeah this has uh, 200 grams of carbohydrates in it and that's however many tablespoons of sugar but you're like okay cool it's literally like fucking 50 grams of fiber like fiber is technically a carbohydrate so it's not really the same you know um but anyway that's just kind of beside the point and um, also on top of that and this is these are two further things that increase your satiety. And um, that is low calorie, high volume, like whole foods. Like if you eat, I don't know, a head of lettuce, like you don't get a huge amount of calories from that. However, it can be quite filling because there's so much volume to it, 
right? Same with like any veg, basically. Well, not any veg, but most veg basically is the same. Um, so that's obviously going to modify your overall diet. And it, that's regardless of the macronutrient breakdown of your diet. Uh, and then further to this, like we've been touching or we've been discussing like how to make things like super palatable in terms of, oh yes, lash a load of sugar on that um, or add a load of fat. Or if you can combine the two of those things, happy days, right? And that obviously makes something very palatable to most people. But if you are trying to lose weight, and this, this isn't necessarily something that I would recommend, but I'm just using it as a... Uh, a visual tool, right? Um, or a tool to describe this. Um, like if you were to just get rice, right? You had whatever, a serving of rice. If you were to eat that rice with nothing else, right? It's just plain white rice, right? You're going to say you have to eat, I don't know, 200 grams of the stuff, right? In one sitting. Like if it, there's nothing else with that, you're not even allowed to have a drink with it. Like it's going to be very hard to get through that you're just going to be like oh like four spoonfuls and i'm like ah oh, no it's, it's too dry it's too plain I, I don't really want it you know i'm just talking about you know regular rice none of these like extra tasty rices or you know you cooked it in a certain way that makes it even tastier or whatever it's literally just boiled plain rice right like you're going to be quite full after a few spoonfuls of that however many it is for you that's obviously an individual thing right but if i started adding stuff to that even if it's just some salt right makes it a little bit more palatable. It's a little bit easier to, to get in. You know, maybe you add some spices to it as well. That's again, a little bit easier to get in. These kind of flavors, like whatever it is, could be, I don't know, whatever you want, right? That's, it increases the palatability of it, right? But if I was to add some sort of sauce to it, let's just use ketchup, right? Just ketchup and rice, whatever, but it's just ketchup. It's just more carbohydrates basically, right? Like you're going to be able to eat more of it, right? But if I was to add a high fat sauce to it right like a i don't know some sort of curry sauce with uh made from like coconut right um you're going to be able to like gobble that stuff down you're going to be able to eat so much more of it it's going to be so easy to get through it all and you're going to be consuming more calories in doing that right so even though we're saying there's an argument against the individual macronutrients right? In terms of carbohydrates don't cause obesity, fats don't cause obesity. There are ways you can structure your diet that lead to it being more obesogenic, right? Like you could have more simple sugars in your diet, right? And while mechanistically simple sugars don't cause more obesity or cause you to be obese, that doesn't mean that if you were to just start to start eating, I don't know, Skittles or something on top of your diet, like you could definitely easily fit in more Skittles into your diet without feeling full, right? So you have spontaneously increased your calorie intake by virtue of adding a macronutrient, or I should say adding a food that is high in a macronutrient and that is easy to overconsume, right? And it's the same with fats. Like if you add, I don't know, 20 grams of olive oil to a meal, like you don't really notice that too much you might be like oh it has a bit bit too much of an olive oily taste and but you're just kind of like yeah okay cool i i don't really feel overly full or extra full from that meal you know and so again it's very easy to add single macronutrient foods and because they're low in satiety um you you effectively end up eating more calories and again this is this is something that you see when we look at the research that 
once you do compare like isocalorically, so they're the same calories, um, there's no difference, right? But that's, again, as Gary was saying earlier on, that's not how things play out in the real world. Like when you're not under this lab condition where, you know, oh, uh, you, the, the food is prepared for you. That's all you can eat. Even if you're extra hungry, there's no extra food to eat. You know, it's like you're two weeks in this lab and they provide everything, you know. Um, whereas in the real world, if you're eating this, this is why I was saying I, I don't necessarily recommend this as a dieting strategy. If you were to be eating this diet of really low palatability food, you know, you're literally eating this micronutrient deficient model that everyone in Hollywood seems to eat of like chicken, broccoli, and white rice. Um, if you're eating that and you walk outside and you're walking by your local, I don't know, kebab shop, chipper, um, Chinese, whatever it is, you know, and you smell that food, like the, the response to that is completely different. Like you're going to be like, yeah, okay, I'm going to get in there. Or again, you're like, all right, cool. I know I have a meal prepared for me at home, but I'm going to get that four in one or whatever it is, you know, like that's, that's just the, 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 the reality of it. And again, that's what I'm saying. I don't necessarily recommend having this low palatability, low palatability diet. Um, but I just wanted to use that to illustrate the, the overall point. But what I am saying is that differences in macronutrient intake can influence, and I should say differences in macronutrient intake and how you set up the diet overall does influence how you actually, or how, what your ability is to sustain that diet, how you are actually able to hit those calories, stay within those calories that you want to hit, hit those macronutrient targets that you have. Like, there's a lot more to it than just giving calories and macros. And while that's a great starting point, you, for individuals, you need to dig a little bit deeper. Like you need to ensure that fruit and fiber or fruit and vegetable intake is up. So you're getting enough fiber. You need to ensure, especially that protein intake is where it needs to be and that it's spread out throughout the day so that hunger levels, et cetera, are in a better place. And this is all stuff that it gets ignored when we discuss single macronutrients as the cause of obesity. You know, like that neither of those two things that I just discussed in terms of like fruit and veg or fruit and veg intake or protein, especially protein space throughout the day, that's that neither of them are covered by, oh, you must eat a low calorie or a, a low carb diet, or you must eat a, a low fat diet to, you know, stop obesity. Like neither of those two things are, are covered and they have a huge influence, you know? And so there is more to this discussion in terms of the actual response to the diet and especially the food environment, which I want to touch on now in a second and just to kind of wrap this up. Um, but there's more to it than just looking at the macros and there's no mechanistic stuff that would make you want to look extra hard at the macros. So that's, it's not a good, it's not a good lens to look at things through like the, the calorie lens is a better lens to look at this stuff through, even though, the macro stuff is actually still important, but it's not important because of some mechanistic thing that makes fat intake more obesogenic, obesogenic or carbohydrate or sugar intake more obesogenic. Yep. And I think like extending beyond just obesity itself, of course, like we are not saying that, um, you know, it's all just calories when it comes to health, you know, and, and other parameters of of cardiometabolic risk for example you know we've obviously we've discussed atherosclerosis and blood lipids and things like that and the role of different foods um both making those problems worse or better and that also applies to 
um, visceral adiposity, so uh, fat around your organs, that is affected um, by diet quality as well. So there are some additional effects that obviously um, are, are modified, modified from a health perspective that go beyond just total calories. And I think that if you're a regular listener, obviously you won't assume that we're just saying, oh, just track your calories, bro. And that's it, you know? Uh, so there's there's definitely more to it. And, and hopefully we can get into some of the metabolic effects of different macronutrients um, and foods in general um, in later episodes. But for now, I think our conclusion is, is very much that um, you have to uh, look at, at calories when you're considering changes in body weight. That doesn't necessarily mean that that requires tracking. Um, and it doesn't, it also doesn't mean that a low carb or a low fat diet mightn't actually be really successful for you because it very well might be. Yeah. And this is the thing as well, as we were saying, said earlier on, like something that prevents obesity and something that treats obesity, they're not necessarily the same thing. However, the principles that underlie them in terms of finding a diet that you can actually stick to that allows you to stay within a number of calories that you need to hit, like that's, that's ultimately the goal of both sides of that equation in terms of treating obesity and in preventing obesity. And with that discussion comes along other stuff in terms of, like you were saying, like the overall diet composure in terms of like are you eating whole foods versus eating processed foods you know like there's 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 more to it than just the calories you know and, and obviously again further to that the macronutrients are still important so like i don't want people to come away from this and think like macros who cares it doesn't matter right like that's obviously not the argument either the argument we're making here today is that neither of those fats or carbohydrates are inherently obesogenic and neither of them are going to cause you to gain fat and um, like they will if you are in a calorie surplus which is the actual like cause right however there is more to discussion to the discussion and it's stuff that we'll get onto in future episodes and um, in terms of your ability to actually stick to the diet based on the diet that you are eating, you know, and we didn't even touch on like, we'll call it the, the psychology of uh, of the diet based on the different macronutrients that you're eating. Like there's a different psychology. If you're trying to eat very low fat versus you're trying to eat like moderate fat, moderate carbohydrates versus you're trying to eat very low car uh, carbohydrate. Like there's a totally different shift in your overall psychology and how you interact with food as a result, right? Like it's actually so much easier to go out and get a high carbohydrate, low fat meal than it is to go out and get a, a high fat, low carbohydrate meal, right? So like even just going out and doing that, I mean like at a restaurant, I don't mean like in say your local shop or whatever, like I don't know, you, you want to get a, a low carbohydrate, high fat meal. It's like, there you go, there's an avocado, there's a stick of butter, whatever, you know? It's like, that's, it's very, yeah, exactly. Like, it's very easy to to get. Um, but I mean, like in a restaurant, like you're trying to eat out with people, you know? Like it's, it's a different experience for both of those. And that obviously influences your ability to adhere to either of those diets. And there's a whole host of other things that go into that. But I think we should just wrap it up there. There was a few things that I wanted to cover, but you know, we're actually going to cover them in other episodes so we can just talk about them uh, there. Um, do you have anything else to just kind of wrap up or finish up on saying with regards to macronutrients specifically targeted to obesity in terms of 
should we be afraid of a single macronutrient if we are trying to prevent obesity? And then should we, I don't know, cut out uh, a certain macronutrient in, in dealing with obesity? Yeah, so I suppose one thing to add uh, that would just be that you shouldn't over rely on your lived experience uh, to inform your nutritional views because this happens so often where people will just seek um, confirmation of the way that they like to eat, which is really silly when it comes to actually putting out information for others. It's totally fine for yourself. Like if you want to just live in your bubble and say, man, I've always had success with this low fat diet. You know, I've always chosen low fat foods and it works perfectly for me. And, you know, I'm just going to keep on doing that. Then that's absolutely fine. But what a lot of people will do is that they might have success on uh, a low fat uh, vegan diet, for example, or a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, keto, carnivore, etc. And because it was successful for them, they completely overweigh the relevance of their own experience um, as it relates to the actual scientific evidence. And you do see that, you know, people do vary in terms of how well they do on different diets. And there are studies on giving people the options to, you know, self-select for different types of diets, you know, whether they be low fat um, or low carb. Um, and, and there's also kind of a path dependence there as well. So for example, your your taste buds and your ta- taste preferences are are malleable. So over time, if you are, you know, consuming a particular diet, let's say you've consumed it since childhood and you have all of your own food preferences, then it may be very hard for you to see how you could actually change uh, that dietary pattern. Like for example, if, if butter and cheese and dairy has always been a really big part of your diet, and that seems to be like the factor that just stops you from reducing calories, then over time, like if you do remove those foods gradually, like your preferences do change to some degree. It's not necessarily, they're not going to change totally. Like it's, it's very rare that someone's going to turn around and say, I actually hate chocolate and pizza now, you know, <laughs> you'll have some fitness people say that, but it's, it's generally a lie. Um, but you can, you can definitely modify your preferences once you do um, change your diet. So, you know, don't, if you are that person who's, you know, just thinking about, your own diet and how you might change that over time. Don't feel locked in by the foods you like at this point in time, because it, it can, it can change to some degree. And obviously part of that is also um, cooking. You know, if you've always eaten, let's say a, a diet that's very rich in fat, you know, and you've always had those tools available to you to make meals taste nice, because obviously if you're using fatty sauces and, you know, fattier meats, it's much easier to make meals and taste delicious, then it might just be the case that you actually need to work on, you know, your culinary skills to be able to make a lower fat diet or a lower, lower calorie diet more palatable. So, so yeah, um, I guess that would be my message because it's definitely something that's probably, you know, not talked about much that, you know, people do just have <laughs> dietary preferences and they find it difficult to move from that. And sometimes for their health, it might actually be good to, to move from that. So while I'm no expert <laughs> on cooking or giving you recipes or anything, I'm sure there are people out there that, that could help with that transition too. Yeah, basically just don't become a, and it worked for me, bro. You yeah. know, like don't, don't become that individual who, Oh, works for me, bro. Same in the the gym when people give advice for different exercises. It's like, oh, it works for me, bro. You know, like what works for me doesn't necessarily work for Gary in the gym. So why would the same thing apply for our diets? You know, and 
obviously there is a fundamental underlying science to the stuff that's you know generally the same and it's the same in the gym in terms of like tension builds muscle effectively once there's sufficient stimulus etc um, and it's the same with the diet like calories are the fundamental but the actual specifics of that you know there's a lot of interplay there's a lot of inter-individual you know variability like there's a lot going on be above and beyond the discussions we're having and you know we will have further ones in the future one thing and a final thing that i do want to note though is that and again this goes to the discussion of um carbohydrates specifically but just macronutrients in general like going back to that chinese population example because it's a good population to study because in our lifetime basically and um, not mine necessarily my lifetime because it's kind of since the 70s but you know in this kind of two three generation lifetime lifespan um like I, in an individual's lifespan is what i'm trying to say um they've gone from basically starvation <laughs> and population-wide starvation to obesity you know like it's it's very quick right so obviously that's a very good population to study in terms of looking at the potential rise of obesity like why it's happening right and this is even more apparent in these other countries you know in the uh asian countries the, this uh, emerging uh asian asian uh, market or whatever you want to call it uh, economies populations countries whatever um like you start seeing the same thing in terms of it's generally sugar that comes in first and that is one of the drivers of a higher calorie intake and then other things start popping up and we'll talk about this in a future episode but that can also be misconstrued in terms of thinking that this is how obesity starts like it could start from increases in fat intake and um, but generally what seems to be the most effective like if we were to try to like if we wanted to go through to i don't know some sub-saharan country right like they're they're dealing with starvation and um, first of all we would deal with we would deal with that by you know increasing their availability of food in general getting that up to a sufficient level through whatever means like obviously that's that's a, a bigger discussion to have like it's not like i can just click my fingers and say that's going to happen like otherwise it would be done and um, but the next thing if we wanted to start moving that towards an obesogenic environment and um, we would start bringing in like sugar sweetened beverages, right? That's one of the simplest ways to add calories to the diet. Just drink your calories, you know, and that starts off the process. Then we can start bringing in other things that are more obesogenic or, or obesogenic. And um, in terms of like, we could start bringing in McDonald's, you know, um, which is something that I always think about like McDonald's and, you know, those kind of multinational, international, trans global um, food corporations. I'm like, I'm in two minds about this stuff because in one mind, I'm like, look, they've actually fucking wreaked havoc on like our countries in terms of these, you know, like I live in Ireland, like obviously I'm like, they've wreaked havoc in these, this Anglosphere, we'll say this Western diet, like or this Western population, like it's a little bit different on mainland Europe, but it's not like it's heading in a different direction. Like they're, they're on their way. And, um, but especially in the English speaking world and, um, this obesogenic diet has been pros uh, has been going on but uh one of the things I, i'm also just like oh man if we could just some way subsidize them to solve the uh starvation crises across the wor world i'm like look they're clearly good at getting calories where they need to go and um, but then i'm like ah it's probably not not great uh 
you know, it's not a great trade-off in terms of the, the long-term health of that population. Um, but if my child was dying and McDonald's was like, look, I'm going to have a McDonald's up the road, I would be fucking incentivizing that McDonald's in whatever way I could, um, you know? So that's, they're just the thoughts that kind of ramble around my head. But anyway, look, that's beside the point. Um, basically, macros, an individual macronutrient does not cause obesity or drive obesity. Um, however, that doesn't mean that macronutrients aren't a part of this whole discussion of an obesogenic diet. Yes, sir. Um, I don't think I have anything else to add. Neither do I. So where can people find us? Yeah. So as always, guys, you can uh, join the Coach's Corner if you're a coach and you'd like to um, progress on your education. So if you'd like to uh, learn more about everything that we talk about on the podcast, uh, that's the place uh, to start. So get involved. You can also join our newsletter if you just like to keep up with the content that we're putting out. Um, You get a roundup of our kind of social media content, any um, coaches corner content you know you'll get an idea of what's in there we also put out you know a little essay or short article that goes in there as well that you might be interested in along with recommended resources as always too uh, we do have a facebook group as well the triage method community again open access you can join that and you can ask us any questions in there or spark any discussion if you wish to get the insight from other coaches and trainees we're more than happy for you to do that and you can of course follow us on social media so um, all major social media platforms at triage method um, along with youtube where you can subscribe to our youtube channel we do post the podcasts in video format if you are interested in that all you will see this week is my red nose and me wiping my nose but some weeks um we you know we look a bit nicer you know sometimes uh, my barbell might be shifted slightly to the right in the background my curtains or might you be might open be tropical. Uh, yeah i might even put a little tropical background on you know for for, for when we really get lucky. I think um, our Christmas episode, um, I think it'll be, is it St. Stephen's Day? We'll be, all, we'll be recording our, our podcast that week, yeah, the Sunday, Sunday the 26th, I think. I think we'll have to get some Santa hats on for that episode, so stay tuned and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, watch them, watch them on there. Although you can also leave a review for the podcast. That's recommended too. Although most people are listening on Spotify these days and I don't think Spotify does reviews, which is quite annoying because like, they're quite beneficial in terms of looking at different podcasts. You're like, Oh, 700 people have reviewed this and given it five stars. However, if you are listening on some other podcasting app, give us a five-star review or give us a one-star review. I don't care. I want to know your feedback. Tell us what you think. Um, yeah, I have nothing else to, to really say. And we do have coaching spaces as well, actually. <laughs> yes, we do. Get involved. Get involved. Uh, but I would recommend getting in the coach's corner. That's, I think, for the population that generally listens to our yeah. podcast, like that's the, that's the place where they're going to find the information that they want to upgrade their ability to coach themselves or coach other individuals. And um, so if you are a coach, like I definitely would recommend getting in there. But if you're just interested in learning more about all this health and fitness stuff in a practical manner, like it, it, it's basically a win-win because if you want to know how to coach yourself, like what better way to do that than to learn how to coach 
you know like that's it's it's a it's a win-win in terms of you're we're, we're basically helping coaches get better but also we're helping individuals coach themselves better and um, so if you are interested in your own training and you want to take it to the next level you can either get involved in coaching itself or potentially you might just drop into the coach's corner see what kind of um, information is in there and how it can help you coach yourself better yes sir i have nothing else to say so we'll see you uh next week it's too easy <laughs>